Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Bind, torture, kill. Today we discuss the infamous BTK killer himself, Dennis Rader. Let's open the serial killer file. Dennis was raised the eldest of four children in Wichita, Kansas. At a very early age, he felt compelled to commit acts that many would-be serial killers do. He began torturing animals. Later, these urges shifted, and he began obsessed with women's underwear, stealing them and wearing them himself. Through these desires, however, Dennis, years later, was able to pull it all together and join the Air Force. Eventually, he was discharged and worked with his mother at a supermarket in Park City and attended Butler County Community College in El Dorado, where he earned an associate's degree in electronics, after which he went on to obtain a bachelor's degree in administration of justice. However, unbeknownst to his fellow students, they were attending class with a monster in the making. During his time in college in 1971, he met the love of his life, Paula Dietz, who would be the mother to his two children. In 1974, it wasn't only love that Dennis found, but murder as well. Dennis approached a home one day in January. While outside of the home, he cut the phone lines. According to his account, he considered walking away right then and there, unsure if he could follow through with something as intense as murder. But as he stood at the door of the Otero family, as fate would have it, the door opened. A young boy had opened the door to let the family's dog out. This would have proven to be a great mistake. Dennis saw this as an opportunity to enter and did so without hesitation. He pulled a pistol on the entire family and requested that the Otero's notoriously unfriendly dog be let outside. The dog was let out and Dennis forced the family into the bedroom. Dennis tied them all up one by one and after much effort due to inexperience, strangled the mother and father then their eight-year-old son, and finally brought their 11-year-old daughter into the basement where he hanged her. He then proceeded to masturbate over the bodies before cleaning up, taking some souvenirs, and leaving, something he would do at most of his crime scenes to come. Dennis hadn't been prepared for the actual amount of effort it takes to strangle a person to death. While a person can lose consciousness within seconds of being strangled, it takes more commitment to actually kill the person. This is often misunderstood due to movies and television showing a strangulation leading to death within seconds to keep the scene from becoming too boring. This is the issue that Dennis had. As he would move from family member to family member, others he had just strangled would wake up. This led to him wrapping the victim's heads in t-shirts and bags so that they would suffocate. Truth be told, it can take minutes of constant deliberate strangulation to actually kill a person. But Dennis was a fast learner. Dennis would at times pick his victims and stalk them in very simplistic ways. All he would need to do would be to drive by their residence as they were outside to know that they were a candidate. This was the case of Catherine Bright and her brother Kevin. 
After discovering Catherine's address, he broke in while she was gone one day and waited for her to come home. When she arrived, she came in with her brother. Dennis, at gunpoint, forced Kevin to tie Catherine up and ended up shooting Kevin twice after a struggle. He then attempted to strangle Catherine, but found it immensely difficult as she put up a fight, so he stabbed her to death. At that time, Kevin, who was miraculously still alive, had escaped, but despite an accurate description to police, Dennis avoided arrest. Months later, Dennis grew darker. It wasn't enough to just murder his victims anymore, no. Now he needed fame for it. Dennis wrote a letter confessing to his crimes and concealed it in a book at a public library. In the letter, he explained his desire to kill and requested that he be called the BTK Strangler, claiming that BTK stood for bind them, torture them, kill them. It didn't take long for newspapers to run the story, and the fear of a serial killer swept over the area. Dennis maintained a job as a home security specialist and would often set up home alarms for customers. Little did customers know that the alarms that they were having set up to keep the BTK killer out were being installed by the BTK killer himself. People were unknowingly allowing a serial killer into their homes. It was a few years before Dennis struck again. In 1977, he strangled another woman named Shirley Vianne. Months later, he went on to kill another woman, Nancy Fox, who had been sick at the time. He had her children go into a bedroom and secured them inside. He strangled their mother, who vomited during the process. So he went, got her a glass of water, comforted her, and then put a bag over her head and killed her. Dennis did well at keeping his dark secret under wraps from his family. He became a father and he was described as a caring and attentive family man. He took a bit of a hiatus from his murders, but during this time continued to taunt police. In 1979, Dennis broke into an older woman's house, but she thankfully took too long to get home, and Dennis became impatient and left, infuriated by his failure. It wouldn't be until 1985 when Dennis killed his own neighbor, Maureen Hedge. The following year, he strangled and killed his final known victim, Dolores Davis. In the late 1980s, Dennis eventually left his job for the home security company and moved on to a life murder-free. Dennis took a new position as a compliance supervisor for Park City in 1991. He flexed his limited authority over the residents of the city and often measured people's lawns and could be seen chasing stray animals with a tranquilizer gun. Among these things, he was also a Boy Scout troop leader and a devout member of his church. But in 2004, the anniversary of the Otero murders played across multiple local media outlets. Dennis's need for attention surged and he began contacting the local media outlets with letters and dropping off packages at random locations. One of the items was a computer disc that led authorities to Dennis's church. This, combined with his white van showing up on security cameras at package drop points and a DNA sample from Dennis's daughter, Dennis was arrested in February of 2005 and, to everyone's shock, pled guilty. Witnesses listened to Dennis as he offered up his story about how he murdered each one of his victims without a single sign of remorse. Dennis was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences, one for each victim, which he continues to serve today. And he even admitted that before he was caught, that he was planning on killing once again. It just goes to show that you never truly know a person unless you truly know that person. And even then, 
you might not truly know that person at all. The BTK killer providing home security against himself and being remembered as a kind and loving husband and father proves this better than most. An obsession for women's undergarments and shoes combined with a thirst for murder. Today we discuss the lust killer Jerry Brudos. Let's open the serial killer file. Jerry Brudos was born in Webster, South Dakota on January 31st, 1939. Being the youngest of two boys, Jerry was neglected at an early age. His mother had desired a daughter. Despite her high hopes, she had instead given birth to Jerry. Completely displeased with welcoming a second son into the family, she belittled and psychologically abused him on a daily basis throughout his childhood. The family moved to several neighborhoods around the Pacific Northwest before making their final move to Salem, Oregon. At a young age, Jerry began to freely explore his sexual interests. Jerry was just five years old when he began to indulge in his perpetual fetish for women's shoes after finding a pair of high heels while wandering his local junkyard. Wearing the shoes back home, his mother found him and was enraged. She began scolding him repeatedly until she had no further choice but to dispose of his newly loved possession. This triggered an undying desire to collect women's shoes as well as women's underwear without his family's knowledge. No matter how old the female victim was, he took every chance he could to steal their most intimate belongings. It was speculated that he had attempted to steal the shoes off his first grade teacher's feet and began to steal underwear from women around his neighborhood. Due to the abnormal behavior he displayed as a child his age, Jerry was sent off to mental hospitals for psychotherapy in hopes of eliminating his fetishes. Despite his frequent hospital visits, Jerry's behavior just continued to escalate. Following into his adolescent years, Jerry changed his approach by stalking women in his town. At just the right opportunity, Jerry would knock down his target and begin to strangle the victim until they fell unconscious. He would then steal their shoes and flee from the scene, leaving the victim with no solid evidence pointing towards him. This continued to be his way of getting what he wanted until suffocation no longer satisfied him. At the age of 17, he went on to abduct a young woman and had threatened to stab her to death unless she agreed to follow each of his sexual demands. In fear, the woman was forced to strip naked while Jerry began taking photos of her. His fantasies were abruptly cut short, however, when he was caught and immediately arrested for his actions. Jerry once again underwent psychiatric evaluation and was diagnosed with schizophrenia in Oregon State Hospital in 1956. During his nine-month evaluation, Jerry began to obsess over sexual fantasies that revolved around his pure hatred towards women, specifically his own mother. Despite his record of violence, he was deemed safe enough to continue his high school education and eventually graduated from North Salem High School in 1957. In an attempt at restarting his life, Jerry attended college to become an electronics technician. Within a few years of studying, Jerry began to suppress his fetishes towards women, ultimately keeping himself off the radar from police or doctors for a short amount of time. Once appearing to have his life put together, he met 17-year-old Darcy Metzler. The two instantly connected and began dating. Though Darcy's parents did not approve of the relationship, the two were married just a few months later in 1961. Without hesitation, the two eventually settled down in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. This is where Darcy began to learn far more than she could have ever imagined about her husband. 
Upon their move to the suburbs, Jerry began to experience unusual blackouts, which were later accompanied by unsettling migraines. After much realization, Jerry found that suppressing his dark sexual desires only worsened his condition. He found that his only solution was to continue his old habits of breaking into houses in order to collect shoes and underwear from female residents. Without his wife's knowledge, Jerry went on to satisfy his needs. However, this did not subdue his desires in the daytime as he began making Darcy walk in heels while nude inside of their house as he took pictures. Darcy was open to accepting his interests, but eventually rejected him when he approached her while wearing nothing but women's underwear. Though it was an unusual marriage right from the start, Darcy did eventually give birth to two children named Megan and Jason Brudos. Problems began to arise between Jerry and Darcy. The couple were no longer intimate with each other after she entered Jerry's garage workshop and discovered images he had taken of nude women. The workshop was off limits to everyone in the household. The only way family members could reach Jerry when inside was through an intercom system hooked up to the door of the workshop. With a failing marriage, he began looking for alternatives that went above and beyond anything he had ever done to satisfy his sexual demands. On the 26th of January, Jerry met Linda K. Slauson, a 19-year-old saleswoman who went door-to-door making a profit on selling encyclopedias. It would unknowingly be her final sale when she made a visit to Jerry's house. Appearing to be interested in Linda's products, Jerry led her into the workshop. Before she could react, Jerry began bludgeoning and strangling Linda to death. He then proceeded to use her body as a model that he would change into women's undergarments. Jerry then went on to remove her feet, which were used to wear various high heels, and her breasts were cut off and used as molds for paperweights. Linda's body was later dumped in a nearby river. It would be another year before Jerry would consider taking another life to satisfy his darkest desires. On November 25th, 1968, 23-year-old Jan Susan Whitney was driving back home for the holidays when her car broke down. In need of help, Jan caught the eye of Jerry. Jerry obliged to pull over and help the young woman. However, things took a quick turn for the worse when he began strangling her to death. Before disposing of her, he had sex with the lifeless body in her vehicle before driving it back to his workshop. He continued to sexually violate the body for several days until cutting off both breasts as his own personal trophy. Jan's body was left in the Long Tom River. On March 27, 1969, Jerry struck his third victim, 19-year-old Karen Elena Sprinker, a Portland State University student who was abducted while waiting to meet up with her mother for lunch. She was last seen at the Meyer and Frank parking lot in downtown Salem, Oregon, before she was forced to get into Jerry's car at gunpoint. Karen was driven and taken into the workshop where he forced her to strip naked and wear his collection of women's underwear as he took pictures. Jerry proceeded to rape Karen until he finally hung her from a hook attached to the ceiling. He completed his ritual by violating the corpse, cutting off both breasts, and disposing the body in the same exact river as Jan Whitney. Concern began to arise around Oregon as women were reported missing. Jerry's final known kill would be 19-year-old Linda Dawn Saley, who was out shopping at the Lloyd Center just before she was abducted in the mall parking lot. Killing became a natural routine for Jerry as he would take the same steps in photographing the victims, raping, strangling, and violating the bodies before taking his prized possession from each woman. Linda's body was also placed in the Long Tom River. A local university student tipped police in describing a heavy-set man with white hair and freckles that frequently attempted to communicate and meet up with female students on campus. The bodies of Linda and Karen were both discovered between April and May of 1969. 
Each body was weighed down with heavy auto parts, which were individually tied with unusual knots. With leads pointing towards Jerry as a prime suspect, police were able to request a search warrant for his house in hopes of catching a break in the investigations. Everything had appeared to be normal until they made their gruesome discovery of women's clothing, barbed wire, rope, and images of victims on display inside of the hidden workshop. Jerry was apprehended on June 3rd on three counts of murder. However, he later confessed to all of his murders in detail while interrogated. After interrogation with police, Jerry was able to identify the whereabouts of Jan Whitney's body. She had been tied to a piece of railroad iron nearby in the Willamette River. During the trial, Judge Val Sloper sentenced Jerry to three consecutive life sentences. Though he had confessed to the murders, he was not prosecuted for the murder of Linda Slauson, as her remains were never recovered. For the remainder of his life, Jerry served his time in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Darcy filed for divorce in 1970 and legally changed her name. She eventually obtained a court order which prohibited her children from ever visiting or writing their father for safety purposes. Jerry Brudos died in the Oregon State Penitentiary on March 28, 2006 at the age of 67 from liver cancer. Sometimes the most sinister monsters linger within the people we trust the most. And a good predator always knows how to use this trust as a deadly weapon. This week we discuss the legendary snuff film director, Anatoly Slivka. Let's open the serial killer file. Anatoly was, at one point, a pretty standard man. He ran a children's club of young pioneers, the Soviet equivalent to Boy Scouts. He didn't have a true taste for death at this time, but this soon changed. At the age of 23, Anatoly was a witness to a horrible car accident. One of the young pioneer boys was involved in the crash and was horrifically killed at the scene. Anatoly didn't feel the shock and horror a normal person might have. Instead, something clicked in his mind. Like the first taste of a delicious entree, his nose drew in the smell of smoke, the sound of fire, the sound of screaming and calls for help, he found himself sexually excited. From that point forward, Anatoly was an entirely different man. He used his position within the young pioneers to replicate that lustful feeling he experienced watching the first boy die in the street. Once or twice a year, he would make extra special friends with some of the boys, usually aged between 13 and 17, a similar age to the boy who died in the accident. He'd tell his new best buddies that he had a special exercise to stretch the spine. It involved a controlled hanging. The boys would be brought into unconsciousness at the end of a noose, but he assured them that they would be revived. Surprisingly enough, over the course of 21 years, Anatoly was able to convince over 40 boys to take part in these exercises. About three years after the car accident that had started it all, Anatoly committed his first murder, 
against a homeless 15-year-old boy. He claimed that the murder was unintentional and after being unable to revive the boy, he just dismembered him and buried the remains. Anatoly was also well known for his filmmaking skills. He was good with a camera, to say the least, so he'd often set one up to capture the spine-stretching exercises. He'd set the boy up in a noose, standing atop a chair, and would assist the boy in hanging himself. He'd remove the chair and at times rush back behind the camera to film as the boy would lose consciousness. After this time, he'd take the boy's body down and fondle and caress it. He'd arrange the body in a number of different positions and masturbate profusely. He would then revive the boys who were understandably upset about the exercise and would threaten them into silence. But not every boy could be revived and when that happened, the real fun began. Anatoly would use his finest cinematography skills to capture each limb he would dismember. He could be seen in these videos nonchalantly severing legs and pulling them from the pants. He enjoyed saving the shoes as a small souvenir, sometimes cutting the feet in half while they were still inside the shoes. After dismembering the bodies, pleasuring himself to the sight of it, and taking all that he had wanted from their remains, he would then take out the gasoline. Pouring it over the limbs, head and torso, he would ignite them, taking in the sight and the smell to bring him back to that wonderful day of the car accident. The smoke from the sizzling flesh and crackling meat would send him into a state of surreal bliss. Eventually, after those 21 long years, one boy's disappearance would eventually lead police to Anatoly. And when other boys in Anatoly's group had claimed to experience temporary amnesia when Anatoly conducted experiments on them, police made their arrest. Anatoly was executed after three years on death row by a gunshot to the head. Some of his videos are still viewable through a simple Google search. I'll leave that to you. That's all for now. Make sure to keep an eye out for the next serial killer file because much like the killers themselves, you just never know when one might pop up. That's all in this file. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate. 
and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.